Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Hey, everybody. Uh, Got a great show today, you know, for a change. And this time, I mean it. My guest is Dr. Lena Wen, who is an emergency room physician and professor at George Washington University's School of Public Health. If uh, you've been watching too much news, as, as I have, then you've probably seen Dr. Wen on either CNN or MSNBC or both as an authoritative voice on the pandemic, because Dr. Wen has dedicated her career to the public's health. Now, Dr. Wen was the health commissioner for the city of Baltimore under two mayors, the second of whom was was kind of nuts and was just sentenced to three years in prison uh, for fraud, uh, tax evasion, and, and conspiracy involving, and maybe you've heard about this, it, her self-published uh, book, Healthy Holly, it's a children's book. This woman now, former mayor Catherine Pugh, pocketed eight hundred thousand bucks by forcing these nonprofits, who she had a great deal of control over, to buy her self-published children's book. Uh, for example, the University of Maryland Medical System bought a hundred thousand copies of this book. So, Catherine Pugh is kind of crazy, and Dr. Wen was this crazy person's commissioner of health. And the reason I bring that up is that I have been fascinated with the roles that Tony Fauci and Deborah Burks are playing in President Trump's pandemic task force. And there is a real parallel between Dr. Wen's experience with her insane mayor and Drs. Fauci and and Burks with this insane president. And we get into that. And I think you'll be very moved by what she has to say about the role of a public health official in a situation like she had and what Drs. Fauci and Burks are contending with. And in this case, the enormity of the stakes of their maintaining their their credibility while dealing with a president who at any minute could find reason to fire and replace them with unqualified toadies, which has been his pattern. This is a very difficult time for everyone, and I am extremely fortunate uh, Franny and I are sheltered in our place just two blocks uh, away from our, our daughter's family, which includes two of our four grandchildren. So we walk two blocks and visit and, and help with the kids. Uh, we have Joe, who's six, and his sister Avery, who's three, and they are so friggin' beautiful. And we have been watching this really brilliant hilarious British claymation series, Sean the Sheep. And the kids laugh so hard. We all laugh. But my grandson laughs so hard that when he starts laughing now, he stands up because early on he would laugh so hard that he would fall off the couch. So now when he starts laughing, he stands up. Now, his little sister, Avery, she laughs too, and I'm not sure whether she gets it all or whether she's, you know, following his lead. But I have to tell you, the sound of that laughter is so wonderful. 
But I kind of have to be up to date on everything, and especially on the pandemic and all the ramifications on just everything, including mental health, uh, including our kids who aren't going to school getting to eat. Are people who lose their jobs going to be able to get health insurance? Uh, I haven't been just watching Sean the Sheep. I've been watching the uh, White House press conferences, which I would not recommend because these press conferences are now the Trump presidential campaign, and they are infuriating and insulting and laughable and mostly just sad. There's the lying, the 180s, the self-flattery, the boasting, the lashing out, and that that's that's Donald Trump. But personally, what I find the most galling is just the insufferable and incessant blather from Mike Pence. Now, at the Wednesday presser this week, Pence put on a maddening six-minute display of obfuscation that will guarantee him upon retirement an immediate and unanimous selection into the Toady Hall of Fame. I'm going to play some of this, but this needs a little bit of a setup. A reporter asked Trump about his decision not to extend the period for Americans to enroll in the Affordable Care Act uh, health insurance exchange. Since the vast majority of Americans get their health care through their employer, it was a pretty logical question. In a week in which a record 6.6 million Americans would apply for unemployment insurance, keeping the exchanges open might make just a little bit of sense. Under the $2.2 trillion package, Workers receive payments to replace their lost wages, but nothing, nothing to cover any, any health care coverage that they've lost. The ACA exchanges were designed to provide premium supplements so that low- and middle-income families could find affordable health insurance. In fact, 80% of Americans who get their insurance through the exchanges pay less than $80 a month. And that's one of the big reasons the ACA provided coverage for 20 million additional Americans. Now, without the option of going into an ACA exchange, the best option for someone who has lost her job is often COBRA. And COBRA allows you to stay on your employer's plan. The rub is that you have to pay the full premium. So if your current plan... Say it's a family plan, it's 1000 a month, and your employer covered 80%. You go from paying $200 a month to $1,000 a month after you've been laid off. Hence the insanity of not extending the enrollment period. Now, President Trump was smart enough to realize he was being asked to answer an unanswerable question other than the truth which would be, I want to kill any achievement that Barack Obama had as president, even if it will cause terrible hardship and suffering for millions of Americans. So instead, he handed the question off to Vice President Mike Pence, and the next six minutes were excruciating. Now, I, I am not going to make you listen to the whole thing, but I'm going to play parts of it. So after thanking the president, Pence starts with a pivot. What I can tell you is that the president has made a priority from the outset uh, of our task force work to make sure every American knows that they can have a coronavirus and they don't have to worry about the cost. We were very Except, of course, that wasn't the question. Also, it wasn't true. Americans do have to worry about that. Then uh, Pence moved on to make a series of equally fallacious non sequiturs and blather. Well, one of the things that's, that has animated and, and uh, characterized the president's approach is the way he's engaged American businesses uh, 
to step up and do their part. And as the president said many times, uh, we're we're inspired by the spirit of American businesses. I was at a distribution center. Now, remember what the question was? It was about the ACA exchanges. Then Pence assured us of something that we shouldn't have to be assured of. Uh, but the American people uh, can be confident that as we move into this, we're going to make sure that our health care workers are properly compensated for their extraordinary and courageous work. Why wouldn't they be? The confused reporter interrupted. President, but there will be people who don't have insurance who get sick before any of these mitigation uh, efforts are, are put into place. And without opening the health care exchanges, where can they find insurance? People who aren't insured by these companies that are covering the cost of the copay, where can people go now to get health insurance if they get sick, before well, they get sick? Well, all across America, we have Medicaid uh, for underprivileged Americans. And at the president's direction, the Center for Medicaid and Medicare Services has given unprecedented waivers for states to expand coverage for coronavirus testing and treatment. We've also so underprivileged Americans can have Medicaid pay for the coronavirus testing that they can't get. And blah 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 blah. I think what we're seeing health now after six minutes of this even Trump couldn't take it anymore and he stepped in like a boxing ref stopping a fight stop the fight stop the fight stop the fight I think it's one of the greatest answers I've ever heard because Mike was able to speak for five minutes and not even touch your question. No, so I said, I said that's what you call a great professional. It was six minutes, actually. But Pence did his job. Trump was lying. He, he won't look at it because he is backing a lawsuit to overturn Obamacare that's going before the Supreme Court uh, in the next session. So what should we do? First of all, open the federal exchange. Second, allow the newly unemployed to enroll in Medicaid, which is an enormously successful program. Proof, the last three states to adopt expanded Medicaid by referendum are Idaho, Nebraska, and Utah. Okay. Uh, Today, uh, we have... an interview that really is a great one for a change, and this time I, I'm, I mean it. Lena Wen has a brilliant mind and a, and, and a really beautiful heart. Now, we did this interview on Dr. Wen's due date. She was nine months pregnant with her second child, and I'm very grateful that she joined me from her home in, in Baltimore. So it's a really great one for a change. The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way, and that's with Babbel. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses have helped me learn real-life conversation in German. For example, let's say you wanted to order soup with your dinner. Die Suppe würde mir auch gefallen. That means the soup. <laughs> that, means, that means I would also like the soup. And that way, I get soup with dinner. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now... Get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash franken. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash franken, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash franken. Rules and restrictions may apply. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. 
So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. People see you on CNN. They see you on MSNBC talking about this. And, and you've been a tremendous on uh, explaining the coronavirus. I think they may be curious about you a little bit, but also I got to know you a little bit a, a couple months ago and learned not from you, but from another person, your kind of extraordinary experience as an immigrant coming in at eight, going to college at 13 and uh, graduating at 17 from college. At 18. Oh, at <laughs> 18. So it took you five years. So you weren't that uh, to go from 13 to 18. It took you a while, huh? So not that, not that. Uh, so where did you go to college? So I went to California State University in Los Angeles. Okay. And, um, and I mean, I think my parents and I had in a lot of ways, a typical immigrant story and that it's not typical. I mean, we left China and my mother was a, initially a, um, a university student because that, there were a few ways for us to leave China at the time. And then my parents worked really hard. They always had more than one job. Sometimes they had two or three or four jobs, washing dishes, cleaning hotel rooms. My mother ended up going to night school to become a teacher teaching in East LA. And we depended on a lot of the services that um, we would consider our safety net. I mean, we depended on Medicaid and children's health insurance program. My mother, when she was pregnant with my sister, depended on WIC. I went to public school throughout, and I'm really grateful to have had all these support systems that got our family to where we are. Today. Well, you know, they, they tell you in America that you have to pull yourself up by the bootstraps, but sometimes someone has to give you the boots. That's right. Uh, you were a uh, public health commissioner uh, for the city of Baltimore under two different mayors, right? That's correct. Yes. I first was appointed by Mayor Stephanie Rawlings Blake, and she decided to not seek reelection. And then at that time, then state Senator Catherine Pugh was elected the mayor, and I served under her administration as well. Um, she has since, um, Mayor Pugh has since, as your listeners may know, been convicted of a number of things and um and sentenced or i don't know if she's been sentenced actually but what she did was uh, she did fraud and tax evasion convicted of those things and i'm wondering if there's a little bit of a parallel between your role there and mayor pew and a a dr burks or uh, dr fauci and donald trump if there's any parallels at all meaning that you're dealing with someone who wasn't completely um, sane or, or reliable or uh, that, that maybe you had to couch what you were saying uh, differently than you might with, with another leader. Yeah, I mean, I think as a health commissioner for any mayor, for any elected official, your job is always to convince that person of the importance of public health, because that's what you're thinking about the whole time. But that's not their job. They're not going to know why public health is so important. And actually, because of that saying that public health it works when it's invisible, that there's no face of public health, you have to put the face on public health. So no matter who it is, even if it's somebody who is wonderful and really understands um, medicine and science and abides by data, it's still your job to connect their priorities. But is it harder? Let me ask you this. Is it harder when uh, someone doesn't really value science and data? Like, for example, evidently, well, you would concur with the observation that President Trump doesn't seem to actually care that much about science and data. I think that is a fair assessment. But there are things that President Trump cares about. And when I look at what Tony Fauci and Deborah Burks and the other really incredible public health leaders who are working on COVID-19, 
you know, I've been I've been listening to a lot of um, these press conferences that President Trump has had. I keep thinking about what would I do if I were standing beside him? I mean, I, I can tell you the things that I wouldn't do. I, I wouldn't roll my eyes or make faces or something else that would suggest that I disagree with him, even if I did. But what I would do is to try to think of what are his priorities? What matters to him? How can I make sure that the message and the overall effect that I would want to have can be couched in a way that emphasizes his priorities? I mean, that's the job that I had as the health commissioner for both of these mayors. Again, one mayor who was fantastic and the other one who had some obvious issues. But for both of them, that was my job to understand what are their priorities. Can, can you say it was different from one, the first mayor and the second mayor, the mayor that's been convicted of these crimes? Was it different for her, the way you had to talk to her? Of course. I mean, it was different, but it was also, I think the underlying thread is the same, though, that you still, it's still your job as the appointed official in charge of health to get them to think about health. Now, one method may be that you use science and data, and they could be convinced using science and data because that's what they listen to and and agree um, with data and evidence-based decision-making. That would be ideal. But there are other times when there may be somebody that, that you're working for who doesn't share those priorities. And it's your job to figure out who are the credible messengers to that person and what is the message that you would be using to convey to them that they in the words and the priorities that they understand. And that's what I learned a lot, I think, in my in my role, especially working for the second mayor about how to find those voices that she trusted, because even if that voice wasn't me, there was a way that I could get to her. And I could imagine, I don't know, but I could imagine that that's what Dr. Fauci, Dr. Burks, and others are probably working on now, too. Yeah, I think that uh, Dr. Fauci, you mentioned rolling your eyes, and I think he did that. And I think that's why you mentioned it. Uh, he also gave an interview where he said, I can't shove him out of the and have him uh, when he's going to say something that isn't true. And then he was gone for a little bit, and then he's back, and he hasn't done that since. And uh, you saw the interview that Dr. Burks gave to uh, the Christian Broadcasting Network. Did you see that? I did, yes. How would you describe the job President Trump is doing behind the scenes and in front of the cameras during these daily briefings that we're seeing? What's been your perspective, Dr. Burks? He's been so attentive to the scientific literature and the details and the data. And I think his his ability to analyze and integrate data that comes out of his long history in business has really been a real benefit during these discussions about medical issues. Because in the end, data is data, and he understands the importance of the granularity. And I think he's been really excited about finding the level of detail that we've been able to now bring over the last few weeks to really understand who's at the greatest risk for severe illness, who will have mild and less uh, and asymptomatic disease, and really calling on every American to do that social distancing, because some people may not know they're actually infected and be unknowingly spreading the virus. And that all comes from the president seeing the data and then really directing these policies and these guidelines that go out to the American people. That, to me, was odd, because I think anybody who's seen this president, like when he was saying early on that this was all under control, right? Mm -hmm. He clearly wasn't looking at the data. When he was saying that anyone who wants a test can get a test, I don't know how closely he was paying attention to the granular details of what was going on. My feeling is, is I felt this was close to a hostage video, and I'm sure that wasn't her intent, but very often in a hostage video, you send out a message, I'm exaggerating so much that you know I'm being forced to say this. I think that your position with your second mayor I'm curious about it because I think it may be somewhat parallel to what Dr. Burks and Dr. Fauci, you made the parallel, I think, yourself, have with, with, with Donald Trump. And I think you would acknowledge that 
so far, the president has been incredibly irresponsible. And he's been erratic, which is certainly not helpful in a time of a public health emergency. I mean, consistent messaging is really important, knowing that things change. I mean, I think the American people would understand if he said, this is our course of action right now, and we have to change this course of action in a week for this following reason. I think people understand that. But the erratic messaging is a problem um, and certainly does not instill public confidence. But to your point, Al, I mean, I do... I understand the position that Dr. Brooks is in. So I, I don't know her. I, I haven't spoken to her. So I, this is not, this is just my own speculation. I didn't see her, um, her comments that you just um, stated as a hostage video. Actually, I saw it as quite the opposite. I saw it as this is what she had to do in order to gain credibility with the president. And I've had to do a lot of that myself, as in I always told the truth. I mean, I, I always looked for what are the things that I could praise my elected official for? I would not give false praise because that's just not, that's not telling the truth, but I would find whatever it is that I could, that I also thought that this person would value. And I would say that, and that kind of praise, and, and it exaggerated too, because, you know, that type of exaggeration may be important to that elected official, as I would imagine it is to Trump. I saw that as her saying, how can I be effective in my goal, which in this case, I, I think, involves extending social distancing guidelines, making sure that President Trump is saying something that's in line with public health to the American people. Um, I mean, she, her job is to serve the American public and protect health and well-being. And I saw what she said as that's what she had to do you know, whatever she had to do behind the scenes to get to that point, I don't know. But that's what she had to do in order to convince him that she was credible in his eyes. So you really think that it's a true statement that she believes that his ability to analyze and integrate data has been a real benefit? I think she saw one example of it <laughs> and said, I can see, I can talk about this Good. and okay. have it be honest and have it be something that he would appreciate and that his audience would appreciate. And that's why she said it. I have many colleagues who are um, appointed officials, who are public health officials, who may work for individuals who don't understand public health and don't value science. And these are the techniques that we all have to use because at the end of the day, it's not about us. We have to subsume our own ego to say things that, again, hopefully are honest, but are are not what we might have otherwise said if not for this higher purpose. And I think you would agree with a lot of people, and I think a majority of Americans, that this is kind of an extreme example of this. Yes, definitely, on every level. I mean, it's an extreme example because of how large the platform is, and also the stakes that are involved. It's also an extreme example because of the types of things that President Trump has been saying. I mean, it's, you know, I, again, I watch these press conferences and every time I'm thinking, wow, if I heard this, how, and I needed him to walk this back, what on earth would I have to do to get there, right? I mean, who would I have to talk to to get him to back down? What's the messaging that would not have him lose face and he could still back down? How can we get to that point? That's what goes through my mind. And I am quite certain that that is what the public health officials working for him are thinking too. Again, I, I find it very interesting that you've been in a very parallel situation. You're an emergency physician, right? Emergency room That's physician. Right. You're not a mental health expert. But you must have, in an emergency room, you must have to try to uh, determine whether someone's mental health is, an, is a part of this, right? Yes, and it often is. Okay, now, I would contend there's a mental health component uh, that Dr. Burks and Dr. Fauci are, are working with. I mean, I, I wouldn't be able to give a diagnosis, of course, because I have not examined him. I will say that. And I'm not a psychiatrist. So I let, let me use that caveat. But I can tell you he's insane. I mean, I think that 
they need to contend with some extremely challenging situations with someone who will say one thing one day and another another day and completely deny what he said the first time. I mean, it, it is extremely challenging. And so I think they are walking a very tight line because the worst thing that could happen is if they get on the president's wrong side. And we know that he fires people and, and has no hesitation to do so. And I think it would be just a calamity that I can't even imagine if he gets rid of Dr. Fauci in particular, but also since Dr. Burke seems to have his ear and Vice President Pence's ear, if she were to go and they were replaced by people who the public health community would not recognize as experts, it would be so tragic for the outcome of so many patients, so many people in America. And so the best thing that they can do really is whatever it takes, whatever it takes for them to say to him behind closed doors or even in public, as long as it's honest, we just need them to do their job and hang on to their jobs because that's what the American people need. Okay, I would I would disagree with you a little bit, which I think what Dr. Burks said was so exaggerated that it wasn't exactly honest. But I'm actually on her side here in the sense that what I want people to hear from you as, as someone who's a pretty much an expert on, on this stuff, and especially on being the advisor to someone in authority, that they're looking at a situation, Burks and Fauci, where they are talking to each other, I assume, saying like, we have to be here. Because if he gets rid of us, like he gets rid of everybody, and he can get, he can get mad at you for almost anything. Mm-hmm. If, if he gets rid of us and replaces us with toadies like he usually does, um, it's going to mean hundreds of thousands of more deaths of Americans, probably. That's Therefore, right. I will stand out there. I will not roll my eyes, Tony. Come on. Come on. That was a mistake. <laughs> <laughs> don't do that. I don't want to be left alone with this guy. And if it means blowing smoke up his butt on Christian broadcasting, I'll do it. That's right. But it's on us to be here and keep the people around him who aren't as crazy as him listening to what we have to say so that he goes back from, okay, everybody in the pews on Easter to saying, oh boy, it's very serious. You've got to stay in place for another month, right? That's exactly right. And and I'll, I'll give you an example that's not nearly so dramatic as um, as as what would happen if we had no social distancing in um, um, in this country. And this is a, this is a, a public record case here in Baltimore. So when when Mayor Pugh first started. She had some views about addiction that did not comport with science. Um, she had made some comments about addiction, including that if she had a child, she said this to the Baltimore Sun, that if she had a child with addiction, she would buy that person a one-way ticket to Timbuktu and not have them come back until they were cured. You know, they have very good treatment in Timbuktu. Hazelden has a branch there. Okay, go ahead. So she said this crazy thing. Go ahead. <laughs> and of course, all these reporters called me because actually the I had made addiction treatment the number one priority for my tenure in Baltimore. And so um, to have the incoming mayor say these things that were clearly very much the opposite of everything I had said and done as the health commissioner it was a front page story. And so all these people called me. And I know what advocates and scientists and public health officials in the city or other public health leaders in the city expected me to say, right? They wanted me to denounce the mayor and say, that's not the case. Addiction is, is a disease. How dare she say these things as it flies in the face of everything we've done? I mean, I think there are a lot of advocates who wanted to hear that from me. But I knew that if I said that, 
she could have first of all just fired me and said this person isn't the the health commissioner that I want and who knows who she would have hired instead but i thought even if she didn't fire me i would lose my credibility with her and if the ultimate goal is to get her to change her mind and and do very differently when it comes to addiction and support addiction treatment i needed to find a different path to get to that and so i came under heavy criticism for weeks because i didn't Uh, it looked like i was doing nothing it looked like i was somehow supporting her in order to defend my own job but actually i was working behind the scenes to figure out who were the people that she listened to to get her messaging to change and actually within a couple of months she was giving press conferences with materials that i wrote talking points that i wrote that had people commenting on how she was such a progressive mayor when it came to drug treatment and recognizing addiction as a disease. I mean ultimately that's the outcome that we want. It's not the personal pride of me standing up and saying, "Yes, you know, here the mayor's wrong and I'm going to change her mind and here's why." It's ultimately getting to that point where they're doing the right thing. And if I have to swallow my pride and stand next to her while she said some crazy things, then that's the price I'm willing to pay in order to save people's lives in my city. And I think that that's the same thing. um or a similar thought process that's going on in Dr. Fauci and Dr. Brooks's minds too. So in other words, you are a public servant and a responsible adult. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> and you recognize that your service <laughs> is to the people and in order to serve the people, you have to do whatever it takes to get along with the elected official because that's your job. Okay. People are incredibly critical of her and I guess I've been too. But talking to you convinces me that what they're doing is is actually heroic. Yes. Wow. Okay, and remember this is so sad what's going on. This is so tragic. You know what we've seen from this president is tragic. Now let, let's talk about for example the testing. Uh last press conference. Now we're recording this on on Wednesday, what is it? The 1st? Is it the 1st? It's the 31st. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. 31st, which I know because it's my due date. <laughs> I am very pregnant as we as we Thank speak. you so much for uh doing this on your due date. Uh if your water breaks, just let us know. <laughs> <laughs> it'll only be the third time that, that that's happened on our podcast. <laughs> okay, I'll keep that in mind. <laughs> this is your second, right? That's so, correct. Okay, it's so your second. How how was your first one? Uh, is that too personal? Yeah. Is that too personal to ask you your first labor? Oh, I, I thought you meant how's my first child? My, my No, I don't child. care about your first child. <laughs> I care about your first labor. <laughs> well, your first labor was was easy. I think I'm spoiled. <laughs> okay, well I hope this one is too. Being pregnant in the middle of a pandemic is something that I guess was last experienced in 1918, 1919. So, we'll definitely have a story to tell. You know, I I somebody said this to me the the other day, if your child refuses to I I'm having a girl, if your daughter um, refuses to clean her room or whatever, you can say here's what I had to put up with when I was in labor with you. There was a pandemic going on. So, looking forward to when I can use that one. Speaking of which, okay, so you're going to go to the hospital, are you not? I am. I am going to go to the hospital. Hopefully okay. soon. And the reason you say hopefully soon is that I don't know what the pattern is in Baltimore, but what are you looking what's it looking like in Baltimore if you go another week or 10 days before um your daughter comes? that's exactly right i mean things are changing so quickly um the hospital guidelines even in the last 3 weeks have changed dramatically so i'm at the obviously at the end of this pregnancy and in the last 4 weeks i've had to go weekly for monitoring um because i i have a high risk pregnancy and every week that i've gone something's been different so 3 4 weeks ago our hospital encouraged for families to all be present at birth. It's a very family-friendly hospital and there were plenty of people in the waiting room. People brought their 
partners and their and their parents and talked about bringing their doulas and it just was everybody was there. And then they changed the guidelines so that only one person could accompany you to your medical appointment. And then the next week, nobody could could accompany you to to your medical appointment. And most areas of the hospital did not allow any visitors at all. My hospital still does allow one person during labor and delivery, but only one person. And of course, we know that that could also change at any point too. Um, there are hospitals in other parts of the country that are now or had guidelines to not even allow one person to be with the person give, or with the individual giving birth. And, you know, I think about that. I, I never thought that I would be giving birth potentially without my husband by my side. Let me ask you this. Are you concerned that if your pregnancy goes on another week, another 10 days, as it can, as it can, that you're going to be going to a different setting because of the ramp up of this virus in Baltimore than you would if you went today or tomorrow? Yes, I am concerned. Um, Our hospitals now are not yet over capacity, but we saw how quickly that changed in New York and it could very well change on a dime here too. Um, And it's not only that, it's also the prevalence of COVID-19 in our communities. We just don't know because of lack of testing. We don't know. And uh, I mean, it's possible that I have COVID-19 and not realize it, but it's also possible that my nurses and techs and doctors who will be treating me have it and don't know. And the longer I wait, I do think about the higher the rate of asymptomatic carriers will be and the higher rate of exposure there will be for all of us. And so I, I think about this a lot. And I, I know that that adds to my anxiety of trying to give birth sooner rather than later. And also, it's not super comfortable to be 40 weeks pregnant. Um, but it, it's mainly that anxiety that I think is just, I know, having heard from so many pregnant women across the country, I know this is something that we all share. Let me ask you this. and I, Is this a, a wrong thing, a bad thing to ask, do you consider then inducing? Because you're 40 weeks long, the baby's fully baked. That's right. Actually, I am due for my medical appointment tomorrow, and I'll be discussing it with my OB at that time. Um, this might be way TMI for your for your podcast, but you think it's good? <laughs> I'm, I'm fine. I'm fine with it. I mean, this is just the facts of life that we think about making all kinds of decisions as a result of this pandemic that we might not have otherwise. And I mean, I, my first pregnancy, I wouldn't have thought about inducing um, if I were, you know, a day over my, my due date. But for this one, I am for all these reasons. And, you know, I, I think there are a lot of uncertainties that so many people are facing. And if I had to give birth without my husband, it would be awful. But then I think about all these people who are dying alone or who are going through emergency surgery alone and who are making all kinds of sacrifices. And these are just the times that we live in. So now you're sheltered at home, right? Yes. And tomorrow you see the doctor? That's right. Tomorrow morning, I have an appointment with my OB where I'm going to, um, we'll, we'll see where I am um, and we will have a discussion about induction. You'll broach the idea. I'm, I'm not a public health official. I'm not a doctor. So I felt kind of, I mean, is that the wrong thing to ask a woman? I mean, is, <laughs> I mean why don't you induce for God's sakes? <laughs> it depends a lot on the medical circumstances, um, on pre-existing conditions. It also depends on what the pregnant person may want to do. I mean, a lot of people have their own thoughts about labor and a lot of people, including me, would rather go into natural labor, which I did the first time. Um, and so would have done that this time um, had it not been for some other pressing issues related to a pandemic that's happening. And so it's just it's a, it's worth a conversation is all that. Uh, and I think a lot of women now will be looking at their pregnancies very differently because, you know, I know that last time at this point I was thinking about car seats and daycare and, you know, there were just very different concerns that I had um, than I do right now as I'm about to approach this next, this next period, the next few days. In this time, and you're doing a podcast like I am or, or a show like I am, you're trying to find a new angle on things. I think you gave us one. <laughs> so 
because of our dropping the ball on testing. Right. That's why you won't know who in the hospital is positive and who isn't. Or even whether you are or not. That's right. We're going to take a a quick break. Um, We'll be right back with Lena Wen, unless she goes into labor. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code AUDIO to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code AUDIO at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code AUDIO. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. I, I don't know if you heard the tape of, of uh, Governor Bullock of uh, Montana talking to the president. There were some governors on the phone with the president phone call. Mm-hmm. And Bullock is the governor of, of Montana. And because for the lack of being able to test people, for the want of being able to test people, he can't figure out what the patterns are in the state. Yes. Right? That's why we needed the testing. That's why the testing would have considerably uh, helped the situation and, and fewer Americans would be exposed and fewer people would die. Mm-hmm. but they dropped the ball on it. And Trump at one point said, if you want a test, you can get a test well right. before anybody could get a test. That's right. And so we have a president. I mean, you're, you, he can't fire you. You can acknowledge that he's, that he's totally irresponsible. You know, so two things here. One is, I mean, you're right that there have been major issues with testing that have cost us invaluable time, that cost us weeks, maybe months that China bought us, right? I mean, China in doing their, in doing these restrictions, they bought the rest of the world time. And we had time, therefore, to develop the type of test that South Korea and basically so many other countries have have done. And when we look at the failures along the way, they're actually quite astonishing. I mean, even when the tests were first coming out and President Trump made these comments about, well, anyone who needs a test or wants one can get one, they were getting tests out. But then we ran out of swabs to literally get these tests. And then when swabs were there, we realized that we didn't have reagents to process the tests. And then there were enough reagents, but then there were not there was not enough personal protective equipment and doctors and nurses could not administer the tests. I mean, there's so many things that were predictable that should have been anticipated and actually were anticipated. But just the actions from this administration did not follow up on it. And we're seeing that now with cries of help, people begging this administration for equipment and gowns and masks and goggles and ventilators. We know what we need, and this administration is not delivering on it. So, I mean, all that is terrible. You're absolutely right that the comment that the governor made about lack of testing and how we really don't know. I mean, we don't know how bad COVID-19 is actually in the U.S. We could be off of our estimates by orders of many orders of magnitude. We could have 10, 30 times, 50 times the rate of infection that we actually know of because of lack of testing. So I think all that is definitely true. I will say, though, that from my standpoint, one thing that I'm I'm very sensitive to as a public health official, I think maybe this is having come from local government, is that 
there are people who should speak with the political and partisan voice. You certainly should, and many people should. But I also believe that I, as a public health expert and a physician, would lose credibility if I were to step into that lane. I think that I, my job is to point out the facts and to state what we know based on data and science. And other people can interpret those facts as they wish. But I think my job, and I'm not, you know, you're right, I, I'm not going to be fired by the Trump administration. And it's, it's not, I'm in a very different position than, than Dr. Fauci and Dr. Birx can. I can certainly say a lot more than they can. Um, but I do think that my effectiveness and the effectiveness of my fellow physicians and public health experts is to be that voice of reason and a nonpartisan voice that speaks with science and data. And that's how we can be maximally effective. And we together, you and I together, Elle, can be maximally effective in getting in reaching our desired result too. So what you're saying is I should abandon the tension in the conversation between me putting you in a position <laughs> to have to address how irresponsible and crazy the president has been. Is that right? I'm saying you could say it, <laughs> but you're not, but it's not going to, I'm not going to say it because it's just not yes, my, well, that, that's, exactly, <laughs> that's exactly the tension I'm talking about. <laughs> the man, let's, let's just, uh, you know, the president's doing a great job. He's, he's, uh, you know, I mean, he's trying as hard as he can, right? I mean, I, I don't, I don't, <laughs> I, I, there are things that I may not agree with, including that statement. Um, but, you know, I, I, I do think that there have been major missteps. I also think that there have been major missteps that would have been hard to anticipate, um, that we can't look at everything that this president has done for, for, for the response and say it was all bad, because there are some things that, you know, you're in the heat of the moment, you have to make a decision one, one way or another, and you have to just do it. So I don't think that everything that, that was done was bad. But I think that what's being done now, which is specifically ignoring the cries of governors and local officials and public health experts and hospitals, um, to not put into place the Defense Production Act, to not ramp up quickly, all these things are extremely bad because that's what's going to cost people's lives. So is there an aspect of not learning from his mistakes because perhaps he doesn't want to acknowledge them? And almost psychologically, if he acknowledges them, he can't acknowledge them. Now I'm asking you to do something you don't do. I'm sorry. You know I me. Mean? I don't even, I don't care if he acknowledges his mistakes. I just want him to move forward and do the right thing. I don't need to hear him say, I'm sorry, I did this wrong. We should have done this better. I know that others may want to, to hear him do that. I don't care about that. I just want him to say, and even if he uses all these other excuses or reasons or something and whatever reason to get him to do this, I don't I don't care if he says today, I am now going to ramp up the Defense Production Act. I know that we need you know, three point eight billion masks and X number of ventilators, because that's what my experts have told me to do. And I'm going to get this done within the next month. And in the next two weeks, we're going to get this shipment out to Montana, this shipment out to California, et cetera. That's all I need. I don't need to move backwards. We need to navigate from where we are. And he still has a chance to make this right. And I want this president to succeed because his success means that we can save Americans' lives. What do you see going forward? We, we don't know how long this is going to be, right? That's right. And it depends, as Tony Fauci said, the virus dictates the timeline. But it's not just that. It's also our actions now that dictate the timeline. The longer we have these piecemeal approaches with different states and jurisdictions doing different things, the longer it takes for everybody to do social distancing, the worse the disease is going to be and the longer it's going to drag on for. And so I, I hope that Americans who are listening to, to this or people listening to this will heed the advice of basically every public health expert, which is that social distancing, that physical distancing is what will save lives now because that's the that's the only thing that we can do to reduce the rate of transmission. I mean, that's the tool that we have at our disposal right now. And the more this drags on and the more people go into our hospital system at the same time, the more our system is going to be overwhelmed, the more people are going to die. And that's just what it is. You know, we're not powerless against the virus. 
the virus will dictate the timeline to some extent, but we are also the ones who are going to be shaping the next few months. So I hope that everybody stays at home and knows that and can see that even though it doesn't feel like we're doing very much, just sitting at home watching Netflix is actually the best thing that we can do in order to help save lives. Uh, hope people heed your advice and and uh, that everyone does what the responsible thing and that Dr. Burks and Dr. Fauci prevail and continue to talk sense to the people around the president and to the president and that going forward, he makes and they make good decisions. That's right. That is is what I hope for, too. I, I hope and pray and just put everything into this wish that the president will end up doing the right thing as quickly as possible, because we really depend on him to do that. I mean, I think about all these people who are making just profound sacrifices. They live in Baltimore and 80% of our children depend on free or, or reduced lunch. And, you know, they depend on school as their safe haven. And I think about all these people who've lost their work and their paychecks and don't know what's going to happen to them tomorrow. And so many people are making such profound sacrifices. And that's just the beginning. I mean, we these estimates that are coming out about the best case scenario of 100,000 people dying in the next several months. I mean, that's it's incomprehensible. That's 40 times the number of people who have already died from COVID-19 in the U.S., that means that all of us at some point will know someone and love someone who's died from coronavirus. That level of pain and suffering is coming our way and is the best case scenario. So we really need this president to succeed. And I wish more than anything that, as you were saying, Al, that Dr. Burks and Dr. Fauci and the public health experts will prevail and really demonstrate, I think, for everyone that there is a face of public health and it's our job to make public health visible because this is about saving not just one life, but millions of lives. It's hard to disagree with you. Thank you for being a public health official and for being a public servant of, I, I, I think you're an example uh, to our listeners here, what um, a public servant is. And uh, it's very, very, thank God for people like you. That's all I can say. So thank you for what you've been doing and continue to do. Can't tell you how much I admire you. And right back at you. Oh. We need your voice now more than ever, too. And so thank you for, for being that person, that leader for us. Oh, geez. Well, okay. Uh, it's, that happens on these interviews, you know. You just I, I meant what I said. So anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I, oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That's what I meant. Thank you. I want to thank Leo Kotke for that beautiful music. Peter Ogburn, our producer, for producing this uh, podcast. You know, this is such a difficult time, and sometimes we got to laugh. And I've done some podcasts with people like Conan O'Brien and Dana Carvey and Sarah Silverman and uh, they're funny so go back and listen to them uh, if you need a little break from this stuff Hey Prime members you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad free on Amazon Music download the Amazon Music app today or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com survey. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support 
means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Once upon a beat, remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember Remix and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the New Kids and Family Podcast. Once upon a beat, yeah. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcast. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat. <laughs>